Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers in writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 40 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, this week is another supersized episode of the podcast and another recorded live reading. Today's recorded live reading was, in fact, recorded yesterday at the first of five parts of the Greenbrier Valley Theater's 2010 Literary Tea Series. Each year for nigh on the past seven or eight years, the Greenbrier Valley Theater in Lewisburg has produced these literary teas, usually in October and early November. Well, this year they're spreading them out more, because, hey, who ain't busy in October? During these teas, members of the community are invited to come by and sip tea and eat delicious cookies and treats while enjoying live prose readings by cast members from GVT as well as members of West Virginia Writers. Traditionally, the teas have actually been a place for local winners of the West Virginia Writers Annual Writing Contest to showcase their winning entries, and today's tea is no exception. For the reading today, Curtis Donnelly, who's the Education Director at GVT, he'll be uh, reading a short story by one of America's all-time great playwrights, Arthur Miller. But before that, and actually after that as well, uh, we're going to have a different reading uh, by the second place winner of the children's book category from West Virginia Writers Contest. It's a book called Zapped by Brenda Clark. Now, for reasons which you will soon hear, her husband Bob will be reading a portion of this winning entry instead of Brenda herself. We should also note that Bob himself was voted our second place winner for the Writer's Wall at the annual summer conference this year. And while we're noting things, I should also mention that while I would normally be tempted to split this episode into two parts, that way giving me two different podcasts which I can put out and not have to worry about putting one together for a couple of weeks, I decided instead I would keep it together. There are a couple of incidents that occur during the recording of this that make the piece work better as a whole. Now, one of these involves the timing of the evening itself, and I've kind of alluded to that already. The other, however, might require a bit of backstory for those not familiar with theater superstition and lore. So, for an explanation of the theater faux pas committed by our very own First Vice President, Belinda Anderson, during the recording of this, I invite you to check out at least the first couple of minutes of podcast bonus show number five, which was recorded during the literary tease from 2009. All will be made clear. I turn things now over to Kathy Sawyer, the artistic director of the Greenbrier Valley Theater, for her introduction to the evening. She, in turn, will turn things over to Belinda Anderson. I think we're about ready to get started. Um, just uh, to, to uh, give a little brief start off to this to explain what we are doing. Normally every year we split the reading with West Virginia writers and with the theater or someone from the theater and we're going to do that again this year. But we are about to embark on a, well we are embarking, we're well underway <laughs> on a journey with Arthur Miller in uh, what is probably the greatest uh, American play ever written. It is just beautiful, beautiful writing, beautifully dense, wonderful characterizations, and that's Death of a Salesman. 
And so we decided that as part of, uh, of the program with Death of a Salesman, we're doing on Friday nights at 7 o'clock, every Friday night, we will do a, uh, we'll have someone here, Curtis and I normally, to, uh, for people to have sort of uh, a little extra experience with Arthur Miller if you're interested in it. Things that, that we've discovered about him and working on the play, uh, uh, those kind of things. So that's part of the program. And the other part is this. We wanted to present some of his short stories. So we're going to start with that today, um, and later Curtis will be reading from one of his short stories. And uh, next week I'll be reading from a Eudora Welty story that is in the same vein thematically with him, but it was a, originally we had wanted to do a narrative theater version of this Welty story. But we didn't, re we didn't get the funding to, for both ends of the project. We got the funding for salesmen. So we decided to read the story next week. So I'll be reading Death of a Traveling Salesman next week. And then the following, uh, we take a couple of weeks off. And then October, I think it's the 7th and the 14th, uh, we will have two other Arthur Miller stories. And those two will be read by two other cast members. Curtis is in the show. And uh, Pam Paul and Max Arnault will be reading the last two weeks from Arthur Miller. So that's sort of uh, GBT's uh, uh, game plan <laughs> for our, our, our death of a salesman period. And everybody knows Belinda, but we'll let Belinda start. And we're West Virginia writer first. Is yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Good. Good. Thank you. And thank you, Kathy. Um, well, for those of you who don't know, I'm Belinda Anderson. I'm a board member of West Virginia Writers, and I'd like to welcome you on behalf of West Virginia Writers to this literary tea, and to also thank our host, the Green Bar Valley Theater. The, it's wonderful that the theater offers these type of events. Uh, I'd also like to thank, even though he had to leave, Tim Armantrout, our regional representative, for his work in organizing uh, this reading. Yeah, she mentioned, um, you know, Arthur Miller and his stories. But I, I remember the very first time this theater had literary teas. And they were reading, I think Kathy was actually the reader. She was reading short stories from Tennessee Williams. And I did not know that The Glass Menagerie began as a short story. So that was a wonderful experience. And by the way, I think, Kathy, I'm going to have to say that, that The Glass Menagerie is my favorite play, even though <laughs> Arthur Miller also is great. <laughs> and by the way, uh, let me tell you just a bit about West Virginia Writers. It is the largest nonprofit, all-volunteer writers' resource and service organization that serves the literary interests of West Virginia. It was founded on the fundamental principle that the written word is one of the most distinguishing characteristics of all human endeavors. That's what I love about these literary teas because that certainly is highlighted. Um, by the way, we have on this uh, chair, we have some yellow flyers about West Virginia writers and also some little brochures about the West Virginia Book Festival, which is coming up in Charleston next month and which I think you all would enjoy. So representing West Virginia writers this evening will be Bob Clark. He is representing his wife, uh, Brenda Clark, who won in the children's category in this year's competition with West Virginia Writers. So just a little bit of, of bow. Um, even though we're honoring Brenda tonight, the two do write together. B.B. Um, Clark is their pen name, actually. And they're originally from small towns north of Boston. They have been married for 48 years. Mm. And so we're going to have a big 50th 
have a gift again, right? Bob is retired from the military. Brenda worked in advertising while mothering their four children. They pursued numerous endeavors, including operating a B&B and a real estate insurance and investment agency in Florida, traveling the U.S. as bill posters for a small circus. Now, isn't that great? Every writer needs a background like that. <laughs> They've been textbook buyers and resellers and portrait photographers. Nine years ago, they moved to Alderson from the Florida Keys, where Bob managed an estate, and Brenda was a private cook and personal assistant. It must have been the Trump estate. That's what I'm going to guess. <laughs> um, they wanted to be closer to their three grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. So their writing credits include winning first in the 2003 West Virginia Writers Children's Book Contest and an honorable mention uh, in Writers Digest Magazine contest that year. They also received honors in the 2007 contest for their story, The Incredible Tie-Dyed Talking Horse. <laughs> I love that. The current work is Zapped, and it was Brenda's brainchild with considerable input from her two youngest grandchildren, and also Bob, who we'll be reading today. They provided us a synopsis, but I think it's more fun to hear the story unfold, so I think I'm just going to let Bob read uh, a portion of, of that manuscript to us. So let's welcome Mr. Bob Clark. After that intro and about the circus, I felt like I should do a somersault <laughs> on the stage. So I don't think we need the microphone. I could hear her all right. Although I need to put it here to, to read. Uh, as she said, this is Brenda's story. <coughs> but my Brenda is shy. So I get to do the reading. No, my voice doesn't carry. <laughs> um, and I feel a little strange. This is a, a story for young adults, teenagers. Um, I don't see any in the audience. So. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, I missed you over there. Okay, well, we'll just start at the beginning. Uh, we've only got about 20 minutes, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. Uh, it's a, uh, um, a novel. Uh, the category is considered Paranormal Mystery for Young Adults. And uh, the title is Zapped, and uh, we'll start from the beginning. Fast-moving clouds darken the sky and mist wets my face. But what's a little rain between me and millions of fish waiting for my bait? The wind whips up another notch. Waves slap higher on my thighs. Oh, is that thunder? Bummer. Maybe standing in water with a six-foot metal rod in my hands isn't so bright. But just another minute. Hey, Greg! Lyle yells, tromping through the long grass at the edge of the beach. Come on, let's go! Get out of the sea grass, a lifeguard bellows to my best friend. Get off the beach, you too, pea brain. He points at me. Get out of the water, don't you hear that thunder? I reluctantly reel in my line while backing out of the surf and grab my tackle box. I hate quitting. Fishing's my correct zap. Pain, intense pain, and lights out. Next thing I know, I'm waking up in the hospital. My head's pounding like someone's in there mining with a jackhammer. More bad news. My parents are here. Both of them. I hate it we're in the same room together, with me. Dad's pacing up and down at the foot of my bed. Mom's sitting beside me, scribbling away, working on her novel. She's obsessed with it, and I don't even know what it's about. 
Oh, thank God you're awake, Dad says. Victoria, he's awake. Mom jumps up like magic. Tears gush down her cheeks. Greg, honey, we're so afraid we'd lost you. She clutches my arm like I might try to get away, tries to hug me, but all the tubes and wires are in the way. Control yourself, Victoria. Don't scare him. Dad frowns and stares into my eyes. How are you doing, son? You've been in a coma for two days. Like he's not scary? I'm surprised to see him. He never takes me... Uh, takes time for me anymore unless something's really bad. So this must be really bad. I can't tell if he's relieved that I'm awake or angry because I'm taking him away from his precious computers. My whole body feels like I've been run over by a convoy of Hummers. Two days? A nurse appears at my elbow and, gentle-like, moves Mom and Dad out of her way. Glad to see you awake, Greg, dear. I'm Emma. Dr. Jones will be here in a minute. She pats my shoulder like you do a puppy dog and checks out the monitors. Gray hair and wrinkles on her wrinkles. But she seems to know what she's doing. I try to speak, but hear only a croaking noise like a frog. Is that me? Don't talk just yet. Suck on this ice, Emma says. Little pieces of heaven slosh around in my mouth and drool out. She wipes my chin like I'm a little baby. Then I see Lyle peek around the open door and life's a little brighter. The nurse frowns at my new visitor but doesn't stop him from coming in. Score one for wrinkles. Hey man, you're awake. Love that headband. Looks like they tried to mummify you. He laughs and swipes a hand over his short, curly, red, reddish-brown hair. <clears throat> and what's all that stuff you're hooked up to anyway? You only got zapped by a little lightning. When he grins, his freckles sort of melt together. Did you say lightning? Just be careful, young man, Emma warns. You too could get uh, too close, might get zapped. She winks at me. <clears throat> yeah, right, Lyle smiles. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. Dad waves a hello. Good afternoon, Lyle. Mom says, I think I'll go get a cup of tea, Greg. I'll be right back. She gives me a little peck on my cheek. It used to really bug me when she kissed me in front of my friends. Guess at 15 I'm more mature. It doesn't really matter anymore. <clears throat> Don't you want to see Dr. Jones, Victoria, Dad says? Of course I do, John, she snaps. Guess I'm more tired than I thought, not thinking straight. Her sugary smile freezes in place like the ice queen in Narnia. Beautiful, but cold. She hates it when Dad corrects her but drops back into her chair, grinding her teeth. They don't embarrass me like they used to, but why are they always trying to hurt each other? Then I notice Lyle's holding his old basketball. He moves his arm and shows me a small hole in it. My eyes pop wide inside the ball, gnawing on a chicken wing, sits Lyle's ugly pet rat. Thought Nibbler might cheer you up a little, he whispers. Want to hold him? Hold who, Emma says. Oh, nothing, nothing, Lyle says. Uh, I was just letting Greg here admire my championship ball. I manage a half smile and wonder about my friend's sanity, bringing his rat to the hospital. But it's way better than flowers. Welcome Greg, back, Greg. Dr. Jones booms from the doorway, almost trotting into the room. Several men and one foxy lady follow him, probably all doctors in training. He's been our family doctor ever since I can remember. When did he get all that gray hair, though? 
Afternoon, Dr. Jones, my dad says. Now that Greg's awake, what can you tell us about his mishap? Is he out of danger? Mishap? He makes it sound like I tripped and sprained my ankle. If he got hit by lightning, I bet he wouldn't describe it as a mishap. In a coma for two days, a mishap? So why don't I say this to his face? Chicken, that's why, plain and simple. I can't talk right now anyway, but someday I will. Doc gives my mom and dad a wave and comes up beside me. Hi, Greg. Let me take a look at you. I think you're over the worst of it. How do you feel now? Doc's cool. He speaks to me, not over my head, to my parents. Sore all over, I managed to say. He gets right in my face and checks my eyes with his little light. His breath's like a garbage truck, but I don't move away. I hate myself for being so wimpy. The other white coats crowd closer together and stare at me like I'm some weird lab specimen. At first, the light doesn't bother me, but then it begins to feel like Doc's got an ice pick and he's digging it into me. Ow! I clamp my eyes shut and turn my head away. Sorry, Greg, Doc says, but that shouldn't hurt. He looks puzzled. But it did, I whisper, and I keep my eyes closed, still feeling the pain and a bit dizzy. Now why would you be so light-sensitive, Doc mumbles to himself. Well, uh, okay, for now I'm finished with your eyes, Greg, but I need to check your wounds. You have a new part through all that black hair down the back of your head and a nasty burn on your leg where the lightning exited. And he chuckles. There's an interesting imprint on your back. Looks like a bolt of lightning. So, here I am, lying on my side with the hospital gown flopped open in the back and my butt hanging in the breeze. I feel like an exhibit with, an all white, with all the white coats crowding around. Doc's voice drones on, lecturing them. The woman student leans over my shoulder so her, my face is sort of caught up in her open coat. Coconut butter fragrance surrounds me. I open my eyes. Oh, my God. Her clothes, they're gone. And my mother's right there. Oh, what's happening? I croak, squirming away from her, rolling onto my back. You're okay, Greg, you're okay, Doc says, calm down. No, I'm not. I'm breathing like I just ran a marathon. I shut my eyes tight again. Please, make her move away. Why, what's going on, Doc says. How do I know? This happens only in my dreams. No, <laughs> it was too real. Open your eyes, Greg. I know she's still there because I still smell coconuts, but I take a peek. Okay, she's holding her lab coat together. Why didn't anyone else see what she did? What's she trying to pull anyway? What's wrong, my mother cries. I don't know, Dr. Jones says, all very strange. Sometimes people hit by lightning have a difficult time adjusting to life afterwards. The woman student steps close to the bed again. I jerk away from her. A beeper goes off, making a horrible racket. The woman releases her coat and... And she has all her clothes on. I must be going nuts. The other white coats move away. Emma kills the alarm and comes up next to me. Relax, dear, relax, she says. You're okay, you're safe here. Doc has his stethoscope out. Take a deep breath, Greg. Relax. Relax, I can't. I feel all funny inside. My heart's trying to jump out of my mouth and I'm freezing cold. The shakes get worse. The beeps and back. What's going on? My baby, John, do something. My mother's shrill voice slices through all the other sounds louder than the alarm. Then all noise stops. 
I see Doc's mouth moving, a mile a minute. Mum's mouth turns into a long tunnel with her bright red lips forming a perfect circle. White coats rush around, I can't move. They rip open my hospital gown, pump my chest. Why can't I feel it? A black film covers my eyes. Then nothing. I don't think I have time to continue to chapter two. Well, that's a suspenseful place to leave off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yes, our next reader is the education director here at Greenbrier Valley Theater. You may remember him in his dastardly role as Trout Shoe in the Greenbrier Ghost, and another dastardly role, Bob Ewell. Well, <laughs> not dastardly. But he's also uh, done some great uh, comedic roles here for us, including most recently 39 Steps and um, last summer's All the Great Books and also The Sea Fair this summer. So, and he was in the fifth. Ooh, you said that out loud. Oh, yeah. I can't uh, read. You have, you, have, you have to go out, turn around three times, and knock. And, we'll and we will let you back in. That's why I didn't say that. I'm too scared. I don't know if I can even read this now. Well, the bard did, so. Right. Well, she's coming back in if anybody needs to get another refill over there. Yes, she <laughs> Got plenty. Oh, she's on the floor. All right. Anybody getting any more? So, like Kathy said, we're, we're working on Death of a Salesman, and um, I'm in the show, and but I'm also working on a study guide uh, that we send to, to, school, to school children throughout the state. Um, like we do every fall. In fact, CP is bringing uh, his students, and I'll be sending you your study guide soon, CP. Okay. <laughs> but what we've been working a lot uh, on Death of a Salesman, and, and me specifically, um, and so I think it's really neat, a, a neat idea that, that, we, that Kathy decided to, to read Death of a Salesman, I mean, to read Arthur Miller's stories, because not only did he write um, a, a lot of uh, uh, theatrical work, uh, he also wrote uh, quite a few short stories, um, and so, to me, just as studying the play, it's, it's interesting to read, um, you know, a different genre, but by the same author. And kind of gives you an insight into, into him more than just reading the play itself. And so, uh, and this story specifically, um, I don't know that much about the background of it, but I have a feeling it, it, it's kind of maybe autobiographical from Arthur Miller about his, uh, some of his experiences. I'm not sure. See what you think. Uh, the story is called Fame. $750,000 minus the 10% commission, that left him 675000 spread over 10 years. Coming out of his agent's building on Madison Avenue, he almost smiled at this, at this slight resentment he felt at having to pay Billy the 75000 A gaunt, good-looking woman smiled back at him as she passed. He did not turn, fearing she would stop and begin the conversation that by now was unbearable for him. I only wanted to tell you that it is really the wisest and funniest play I think I've ever... He kept close to the storefronts as he walked, resolving once again to develop some gracious set of replies to these people, who, after all, at least some of them, were sincere. But he knew he would always stand there like an oaf, for some reason ashamed and yet happy. A robe of pearls lay on, a black, velvet in the, lay on black velvet in the window of a jewelry store. He paused. My God, he thought. 
I could buy that. I could buy the whole window, maybe, even the store. The pearls were suddenly worthless. In the glass, he saw his hound's eyes, his round, sad face and narrow beard, sloping shoulders and wrinkled corduroy lapels. For the king of Broadway, he thought, you still look like a failure. He moved on a few steps, and a hand grasped his forearm with annoying proprietary strength and turned him to an immense chest, a yachtsman's sunburned face with a chic, narrow-brimmed hat on top. You wouldn't be Meyer Berkowitz. No, I look like him, though. The man blushed under his tan, looked offended, and walked away. Meyer Berkowitz approached the corner of 50th Street, feeling the fear of retaliation. What do I want them to do? Hate me? On the corner, he paused to study his watch. It was only a quarter to six, and the dinner was for 7.15. He tried to remember if there was a movie house in the neighborhood, but there wouldn't be time for a movie unless he happened to come in at the beginning. Still, he could afford to pay for half a movie. He turned west on 50th. A couple stared at him as he passed. His eye fell on the rack of magazines next to the corner newsstand. The edge of look showed under life, and he wondered again at all the airplanes, kitchen tables, dentist offices, and trains where people would be staring his face on the cover. He thought of shaving his beard, but then he thought, they won't recognize me. He smiled. <laughs> I am hooked. So be hooked, he muttered and straightened up. He resolved to admit to the next interloper that he was, in fact, Meyer Berkowitz and happy to meet his public. On a rising tide of honesty, he remembered the years in the Burnside Memorial Chapel, sitting beside the mummified dead, his notebook spread on the cork floor as he constructed play after play, and the mirror in the men's room where he would look into his morose eyes, wondering, wondering when and if they would ever seem as unique as his secret fate kept promising they would be someday. On Fifth Avenue, so clean, gray, and rich, he headed downtown, his hands clasped behind his back. Two blocks west, two blocks to the right of his shoulder, the housemen in two theaters were preparing to turn the lights on over his name. The casts of two plays were at home, checking their watches. In all, maybe 35 people, including the stage managers and assistants, had been joined together by him. Their lives changed and, in a sense, commanded by his words. And in his heart, in a hollowed-out place, stood a question mark. Was it possible to write another play? Thankfully, he thought of his wealth again, subtracted 10% commission from the movie purchase price of ICU, and divided the remainder over 10 years, and angrily swept all the dollars out of his head. A cab driver slowed down beside him and waved and yelled, Hey, Meyer! And the two passengers were leaning forward to see him. The cab was keeping pace with him, so he lifted his left hand a few inches in a crippled wave. Like a prize fighter, it occurred to him. An unexplainable disgust pressed him toward a sign overhanging the sidewalks a few, a few yards ahead. He had a vague recollection of eating in Lee Fong's years ago with Billy, who had been trying unsuccessfully to get him a TV assignment. Meyer, if you would only follow a plot line. It would probably be empty at this hour, and it wasn't elegant. He pushed open the bright red lacquered door and thankfully saw that the bar was empty and sat on a stool. Two girls were alone in the restaurant part, talking over teacups. The bartender took his order without any sign of recognizing him. 
He settled both arms on the bar, purposefully relaxing. The scotch and soda arrived. He drank, examining his face, which was segmented by the bottles in front of the mirror, cleanly and like a soft blow on his shoulder. The realization struck him that it was getting harder and harder to remember talking to anyone he used to last year and all his life before his plays had opened, before he had come on view. Even now, in this empty restaurant, he was already expecting a stranger's voice behind him and half wanting it. Crummy. A longing rose up to him to face someone with his mind on something else, someone who would not show that charged, distorted pressure in which, in the eyes which he knew meant that person was seeing his printed face superimposed over the real one. Again, he watched himself in the mirror behind the bar. Meyer the morose, Sam ugly, but a millionaire with plays running in five countries. <laughs> Setting his drink down, he noticed the soiled frayed cuffs on his once tan corduroy jacket and a shirt cuff sticking out from the with a button off. A distant feeling of alarm. He realized that he was meeting his director and producer and their wives at the pavilion and that these clothes to which he had never given any thought, would set him off as a character who went around like a bum when he had two hits running. Thank God, anyway, that he had never married. To come home to the old wife with this printed new face, not good. <laughs> but now, how could he ever know whether a woman was looking at him or at Meyer Berkowitz in the full-color magazine cover? Strange, in the long Memorial Chapel nights, he had envis envisaged roomfuls of gir girls pouring over him, when his plays succeeded, and now it was almost inconceivable to make a real connection with any woman he knew. He summoned up their faces, and in each he saw calculation, that look of achievement. It was exhausting him, the whole thing. Months had gone by since he had so much as made a note. When he, what he needed was an apartment in Bensonhurst or the Upper Bronx somewhere, among people who... But they would know him in the Bronx... He sipped his second drink. His stomach was empty and the alcohol went straight to the back of his eyes and he felt himself lifted up and hanging restfully by the neck over the bar. The bartender, a thin man with a narrow mustache and only faint ch signs of Chinese figures, stood beside him. Uh, begging your pardon, excuse me. Meyer Berkowitz raised his eyes and before the bartender he could speak, he said, I'm Meyer Berkowitz. Ah, the bartender pointed into his face with a long fingernail. I know, I recognize in you on today's show, right? Right. The bartender now looked over Meyer's head towards someone behind him and, pointing at Meyer, nodded wildly. Then, for some reason, whispering into Meyer's ears, he said, The boss inviting you to have something on the house. Meyer turned around and saw a Chinese with sunglasses on, with sunglasses on, standing beside the cash register, bowing and gesturing lavishly toward the expanse of the bar. Meyer, Meyer smiled, nodded, and with aristocratic graciousness, as he had seen people do in movies, turned back to the bartender and ordered another scotch. He quickly finished the one in his hand. How fine people really were. How they loved their artists. Shit, man, this is the greatest country in the world. He stirred the gift scotch, whose ice cube seemed just a little clearer than the ones he had paid for. How come his refrigerator never made such clear ice cubes? Vaguely, he heard people entering the restaurant behind him. 
With no warning, he was suddenly aware that three or four couples were at the bar alongside him, and that in the restaurant part, the white linen tablecloths were now moving with hands, plates, cigars. He held his watch up to his eyes. The undrunk part of his brain read the time. He'd finish this drink and amble over to the pavilion. If he only had a pin for his shirt cuff. Uh, excuse me. He turned on the stool and faced a small man with very fair skin, wearing a gray checked overcoat and a gray hat, and highly polished gray shoes. He was a short, round man, and Meyer realized that he himself was the same size and even the same age, just about, and he was not sure suddenly that he could ever again write a play. The short man had a manner, it was clear, the stance of a certain amount of money. There was money in his paws and in the fit of his coat and a certain ineffable condescension in his blue eyes. And Meyer imagined a woman, no doubt the man's wife, also short, wrapped in mink, waiting a few feet away in the crowd at the bar with the same smug look. After the pause, during which Meyer said nothing, the short man asked, Are you Meyer Berkowitz? Uh, that's right, Meyer said. And the alcohol made him sigh for air. You don't remember me? The short man said, a tiny curl of smile on the left edge of his pink mouth. Meyer sobered. Nothing in the round face stuck to any part of his memory, and yet he knew he was not all this drunk. I'm afraid not. Who are you? You don't remember me, the short man asked with genuine surprise. Well, who are you? The man glanced off, not so much embarrassed as unused to explaining his identity. But swallowing his pride, he looked back at Meyer and said, You don't remember Bernie Gelfand? With suspicion, Meyer felt, um, with whatever suspicion Meyer felt was swept away. Clearly, he had known this man somewhere, sometime. He felt the debt of the forgetter. Bernie Gelfand. I'm awfully sorry, but I can't recall where. Where did I know you? I sat next to you in English for four years. DeWitt Clinton. Meyer's brain had long ago drawn a blind down on all his high school years, but the name Gelfand did rustle the fallen leaves at the back of his mind. <laughs> I remember your name, yeah, I think I do. Oh, come on, guy, you don't remember Bernie Gelfand with the curly red hair? With which he raised his gray felt hat to reveal a shiny bald scalp. <laughs> but no irony showed in his eyes, which were transported back to his famous blazing hair and to the seat he had next to Meyer Berkowitz in high school. He put his hat back on again. Uh, forgive me, Meyer said. I have a terrible memory. I, I remember your name, though. Gelfand obviously put out, perhaps even angered, but still trying to smile and certainly full of intense sentimental interest, <laughs> said, We were best friends. <laughs> Meyer laid a beseeching hand on Gelfand's gray coat sleeve. I'm not doubting you. I just can't place you for the moment. I, I mean, I believe you, he laughed. Gelfand seemed assuaged now, nodding, and said, You don't look much different, you know? I mean, except for the beard, I'd know you in a minute. Yeah, well, Meyer said, but still feeling he had offended, he obediently asked, uh, What do you do? Preparing for a long tale of success. Gelfand clearly enjoyed this question, and he lifted his eyebrows to a proud peak. I'm in shoulder pads, he said. <laughs> a laugh began to bubble up in Meyer's stomach. Gelfand's coat was, in fact, stiffly padded at the shoulders. But in an instant, he remembered that there was a shoulder pad industry, and the importance which Gelfand attached to his profession killed the faintest smile in Meyer's face. Really, he said with appropriate solemnity. 
Oh, yes, I'm general manager, head of everything up to the Mississippi. Don't say. Well, that's wonderful. Meyer felt great relief. <laughs> Would have been awful if Gelfand had been a failure, or in charge of New England only. Uh, I'm glad you've done so well. Gelfand glanced off to one side, letting his achievement sink deeply into Meyer's mind. When he looked again at Meyer, he could not quite keep his eyes from the frayed cuffs of the corduroy jacket and the limp shirt cuff hanging out. What do you do? he asked. Meyer looked into his drink. Nothing occurred to him. He touched his finger against the mahogany bar, and still nothing came to him through his shock. His resentment was clamoring in his head. He recognized it and greeted it. Then he looked directly at Gelfand, who, in the pause, had grown a look of benevolent pity. I'm a writer, Meyer said, and watched for the publicity-distorted freeze to grip Gelfand's eyeballs. That's so, Gelfand said, amused. What kind of writing do you do? Uh, if I really had any style, Meyer thought, uh, I would shrug and say I write part-time poems after I get home from the post office and would leave Bernie to enjoy his dinner. On the other hand, I do not work in the post office, and there must be some way to shake this monkey off and get back to where, where I can talk to people again as if I were real. I write plays, he said to Gelfand. That's so, Gelfand smiled, his amusement enlarging toward open condescension. Anything I would have heard of? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, one of them is right down the street. Really? On Broadway? Gelfand's face split into, into parts. His mouth still kept its smile, but his eyes showed a certain wild alarm. His head suddenly was on straighter, his neck drawn back. Uh, I wrote, I see you, Meyer said, and tasted slime on his tongue. Gelfand's mouth opened, his skin reddened, uh, and mostly Florence. The two smash hits seemed to open before Gelfand's face like burst, bursting flats. His finger lifted towards Meyer's chest. Are you Meyer Berkowitz? he whispered. Yes. Gelfand held out his hand tentatively. Well, I'm very happy to meet you, he said with utter formality. Meyer saw distance locking into place between them, and in the instant wished he could take Gelfand in his arms and wipe out the poor man's metaphysical awe, smother his defeat, and somehow retract this very hateful pleasure, which he knew now he could not part with any more. He shook Gelfand's hand, and then covered it with his left hand. Really? Gelfand went on withdrawing his hand as though it had already presumed too much. I... I've enjoyed your... Excuse me. Meyer's heavy cheeks stirred vaguely toward a smile. Gelfand closed his coat and quickly turned about and hurried to the little crowd waiting for tables near the red entrance door. He took the arm of a short woman in a mink wrap and turned her toward the door. She seemed surprised as he hurried her out out of sight and into the street. Thanks. Well, actually, I am looking at the time, and very often the, the GBT selections are a little longer, so <laughs> yeah. I'm always telling West Virginia writers we've got to keep it tight. But we do have a little bit of time. Bob, would you like to read another short section? <laughs> yeah. 
in the synopsis, maybe it put this a little bit in perspective what the story is about, so don't leave you completely hanging, you know, what's going on here. Generally, it's a, basically it's a story about a 15-year-old boy who's very shy, he's really a wimp, <coughs> and he knows it, and he's uh, upset about it, uh, but while fishing on the Florida beach, he gets struck by lightning, and in the process, acquires X-ray vision. And nobody can explain this, of course. But not only does he first, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, able to fantasize uh, with seeing women without clothes on, soon he can see through walls and he witnesses a murder. And then his friend and him uh, pursue this to, uh, to try and solve this murder. <clears throat> okay, chapter two, and I think that'll get you to the point here. Uh, okay, we left him with seeming to expire, but we know that really doesn't happen. The room is dark when I wake up again. Mom and Dad are sleeping, sprawled out on recliners in the corner. Lyle's gone, probably got kicked out. I'm still hooked up to stuff and wonder how long I've been out this time. A nerves comes in, not Emma. She has on tan slacks, more like pajama bottoms than a leopard, and a leopard-designed jacket. But it's her blonde hair swirling around a beautiful face with slanted eyes that capture me. Whew. Well, honey, welcome back to the land of the living. I'm Lurleen. I've paged Dr. Jones, even at this late hour. <clears throat> He's still in the hospital. How are you feeling? I see she's no young chick, maybe as old as my mom. Oh, no. It's starting again. I'm shaking, but inside, not so anyone can see. Her clothes are dissolving, threads fray, and all fabric vanishes. What's happening to me? My eyes feel glued to her, super glued. The doctor will fill you in, Greg. You just lay still and suck on this ice now. I'll help you talk. It'll help you talk, she purrs. She has no clue what's going on, but neither do I. It's different this time. The shakes smooth out and there's less pain in my eyes. I don't think I'm going to black out either. Her skin looks soft and buttery like tan silk blouse, better than any Playboy fall I ever saw. She's real. Oh, now what? Something's inside my head, pushes against my skull. I don't like this. Her skin turns whitish and thin like a touch would poke a hole through it. It cracks, disappears. Ah! I try to push myself away, but can't stop looking. Her blood rushes and gushes around and through her. Why doesn't it leak out onto the floor? What is it, Greg? Do you hurt somewhere? She has her stethoscope in her ears. Her flesh fades, then vanishes completely. No veins, no muscles, nothing, just bare bones. A walking skeleton. But after a few seconds, her blood, flesh, and skin slowly reappear along with her clothes. I'm out of breath, like I'm running up a steep hill. Okay, I pant. I'm okay now. 
I'm so happy to see her with her clothes on and all her bones and muscles and fat and skin under them. I need help. Your heart is beating very fast, Greg, but sounds all right. What upsets you? She snaps on all the lights. Mom and Dad stir. I don't know. I can't explain it. She'd never believe me now that it's over. I'm not sure I believe it myself. Doc Joan rushes into the room. He nods to my folk, bends <coughs> over and listens to my heart. Then he takes his little look-in-your-eyes light out from his pocket, hesitates, puts it back. He doesn't want me freaking out again like that. Your heart stopped momentarily yesterday, Greg, but it sounds normal now. How are you feeling? Better, but my chest hurts a little and I still have an awful headache. What's going on with me, Dr. Jones? There's so much we don't know about lightning and how it affects people, Greg. All we can do is treat the symptoms. I bet he's never heard of seeing through people's symptoms, but I have to tell someone about this. I don't want my parents to hear. So I beckon to Doc, beckon Doc closer and whisper, Doctor, there's something else, another symptom I haven't told you about yet. What haven't you told us? Mom almost yells, jumping out of her chair. She has ears like a robin, listening for worms. Victoria, please, Dad says. I'm tired of being calm. I want to know what's going on with my son. Maybe you don't care, but I do. There you go again, my father says, shaking his head back and forth. You know, folks, Doc Jones says, holding up his hand like a traffic cop. You must be exhausted. You've been here round the clock for more than two days now. As your doctor, I'm telling you both, go home, get some rest. Greg is stable. I'll call you if anything changes. Now go on, out of here. I need to concentrate on my patient. But, but Dr. Jones, my mother stammers, he's right, Victoria, come on. Dad takes her by the hand and she lets him. Why can't they see they still care for each other? Well, we'll see you tomorrow, son. Doc asks Laureen to step out of the room for a minute. Now, Greg, what were you going to tell me? Doc says, grabbing a chair and pulling it close. I tell him everything. Well, that's a new one. And this happens only with women? So far, yeah, older women. He probably thinks I'm a pervert. He scratches his head and gives me one of those me adult and you only a kid looks. Older? What do you mean by older? Like Nurse Emma? Oh, no, not that old. More like that student doctor who came with you yesterday and, and Nurse Lurleen. His Adam's apple wiggles up and down as he swallows and his eyes kind of bulge. <clears throat> you saw Lurleen naked? Not so loud, Doc. Uh-oh. Dad crashes back into the room with Mom right behind him. He looks wild like when one of his precious computers got a virus a few months ago. And Mom, I worry about her sometimes. She's acting more like the end of the world was just announced on the evening news. What woman exposed herself to my son, Dad demands. Get a grip, Dad. John, my mother says, we've got to take him home tonight, right now. She's standing there wringing her hands like they do in those old movies. My mom, the drama queen. Please, Victoria, control yourself, Dad says, whirling around to face her. If you say that to me one more time, John Jacob Johnson, you will regret it the rest of your miserable life, Mom says, hands on her hips. Not now, I think. Don't lose it now. Forget about yourselves for once. I need your help. We're, when are they ever going to grow up? 
Excuse me, Doc shouts, staring at my parents. My patient and your son has not been accosted. He was telling me about a dream. Now both of you, go home. He points to the door. Way to go, Doc. Greg will be moved to the second floor medical ward this evening. We need to watch him for another day or two, but he's out of danger now. After they apologize to Doc and me, they kiss me goodnight again and leave, saying they'll return tomorrow. I hope they really leave this time. Thanks for being nice to them, Dr. Jones. They try. I want to know what's happening to me, but I feel really tired. I hope he doesn't want to have a big, long conversation, and I fake a yawn. You're a generous child, a uh, generous kid, Greg. I know you're tired now, but tomorrow I'd like to talk to you more about all this, okay? Sure, Doc, whatever you say. He probably thinks I'm just an overexcited, pubescent teenager, and he may be right. <laughs> We'd like to thank the Greenbrier Valley Theater for hosting the Literary Teas once again and inviting West Virginia Writer to participate. You can go to their website to learn about their current and upcoming plays, including a Musical of Musicals, The Musical, and their run of Death of a Salesman. That's gvtheater.org, theater with an E. And you can find that linked easily from our website, podcast.wvwriters.org. I'd also like to thank our Region 4 representative, Tim Armentrout, for helping put together the event by scheduling the West Virginia Writers members who will be participating. And I'm not just saying that because I'm going to be one of those participants next month. If you've listened to the podcast bonus show number five for the explanation of the Scottish play legend, hopefully you stuck around for the rest of that show, because Mr. Armentrout's original poetry was featured on it. And I'd also like to thank Belinda Anderson for emceeing the event, as well as for loaning me her spiffy new four-channel digital recorder to capture it. It's a super sweet machine and gave us some of the best sound quality ever. I may be picking one up myself. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Gertrude Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was assembled atop a hill in Mercer County. <laughs> <laughs>